2: Hello and welcome to the Napoleonicist. I'm back for the second episode running to impart my thoughts on you all, and this time I'm not even attempting to hide my focus on Crime and Punishment This one is unashamedly in my lane as it were. This episode is drawn from a paper that I delivered very recently for the Society for Army Historical Researchers Centenary Conference. The session was recorded so if you're interested in the Q&A that followed you should be able to find that online in due course and you can find out more about the Society's work by googling them or by following them at SAHR. So the focus for today to flog or not to flog reappraising crime and punishment in Britain's Napoleonic-era army. On the 6th of March 1812, Henry Brougham rose in the House of Commons to contribute to the annual debate on the Mutiny Act. He proceeded to enter a solemn protest against the practice of punishment by flogging. As a punishment, it was absurd and inconsistent with every end of punishment. It was equally incompetent to reform the culprit, or to deter others. The greater part of the leading military authorities of the country had all been unanimous in condemning the practice. Rome's remarks formed part of a long-running discussion about the role of corporal punishment in the British army in the early 19th century, which was actually often championed by Sir Francis Burdett. The opposing position was deftly articulated by the then Judge Advocate General Charles Manners Sutton, the man who oversaw military trials in the army and who would go on to become Speaker of the House. Manners Sutton thought it impractical to abolish it altogether. What had already been done by the clause introduced in the Mutiny Act last year had succeeded considerably in making it less general, of which he would give the House a conclusive proof. From January 1811 to December 1811, there had been but eight sentences of flogging by General courts martial and what was still more remarkable, of those eight, but one had occurred since March, the time at which the clause passed. For reference, the clause that Manners Sutton was referring to there had been introduced by him the previous year, and essentially empowered the military courts to use solitary confinement as an alternative to flogging when issuing sentences. Yet both Brougham and Manners Sutton were being... Inventive, shall we say, with the truth. Exploring the reality behind crime and punishment in the British Army during this period raises fundamental questions not only about the extent of opposition to flogging, but also about the effectiveness of efforts to reform military discipline and the wider dynamic of command, control, and cohesion across the force during the height of the Napoleonic Wars. As I will hopefully demonstrate, pragmatic concerns at all layers of the Army's command structure resulted in a divergent set of aims in which, in some cases, impeded reform and in others led to its surreptitious implementation. For many years, discussion of flogging in the army has been somewhat overwhelmed by the scale of flogging punishments. When looking at the experiences of the British Army in the West Indies, Roger Norman Buckley described the military justice system as capricious and arbitrary and based upon terror and torture as public spectacle. Broadly speaking, I like Buckley's work and his approach, but due to only focusing on the most senior of the British military courts during this period, his perspective has been skewed from a far more complex reality. Yet there is also a disconnect here between what the army was doing and the practices within wider society's criminal justice system. Michel Foucault in Discipline and Punish, spoke of a transition in civilian courts at the end of the 1700s away from punishment of the body towards punishment of the mind through incarceration and solitary confinement. Foucault's thesis has been repeatedly confirmed by subsequent scholarship on the practices of civilian courts. It doesn't, however, apply to the military context. In other words, the army was bucking the wider social trend. Pressure was unquestionably exerted from above to reduce the scale of flogging in the army to some degree. Military courts had the power to inflict lethally large corporal punishments. Whilst the Navy's lash limit was 500, a general court-martial could issue three times that, 1,500 lashes. This was only issued in three cases. In 1807, the King minuted the proceedings of a court-martial declaring that, his Majesty has been graciously pleased to express his opinion that no sentence for corporal punishment should exceed 1,000 lashes. However, as the King was only expressing a wish and not issuing a direct order, it remained legally possible to sentence soldiers to 1,500 lash floggings, and indeed sentences of 1,200, i.e. far more than the King directed, were issued after his pronouncement. More definitive action was taken in relation Two regimental court-martials, the lowest of the three tiers of military court in 1811, when the Commander-in-Chief, the Duke of York, ordered that regimental court-martials, which had previously been able to award up to 500 lashes, limit their punishments to 300 lashes. At this point, I want to pause for a moment and take you through the different tiers of military court because this does have a degree of significance in covering what I'm going to go on to discuss. At the top of the legal system in effect was the General Court Martial the most senior tier of military courts and the only court that could try officers and issue a death sentence it dealt with the most serious cases of crime most notably cases of desertion murder and many cases of theft Desert- death sentences were applicable for all ranks stopping pay was also a potential punishment it could issue up to 1,500 lashes for non-commissioned officers and privates, reductions in the rank, transportation, cashiering and reprimands in the case of officers. At the bottom of the structure, as we've mentioned already, was the Regimental Courts-Marshal, what I will term throughout this the RCMs, as opposed to the General courts martial, which I will term the GCMs. Otherwise, I'm just going to spend my entire time talking about General courts martial, Regimental courts martial, and tripping over my own tongue. RCMs were internal courts within each regiment, as the name suggests, and they dealt with more minor offences. Crucially, of course, because GCMs were the only ones that could try officers, the those brought before RCMs were quite simply the rank and file within that particular regiment. They could issue punishments of floggings of up to five hundred lashes, limited to three hundred in as I've said. They could stop pay, order reductions in rank, and had the power to order confinements. But in 1812, an intermediate tier was introduced, the General Regimental Courts Marshals, what I would term the GRCMs. Created in March 1812, they tried the more serious RCM cases, i.e. those cases that would normally have been tried at RCM, but in truth deserved a more serious punishment. In terms of the punishments that the GRCMs could issue, floggings of up to 100 lashes were not unusual, solitary confinement was a possibility, as was transportation, reduction in rank and the stoppage of pay. The question, of course, is what kind of impact did that pressure that I was just referring to from the very top of the army's command structure, i.e. the king, the commander-in-chief, have on have in practice on the army. Between January 1808 and December 1812, the top two military court tiers, the GCMs and the GRCMs, conducted 5,748 trials. Floggings were issued in 2,128 cases, or 37% of those trials, and in total constituted some 1.4 million lashes with just 170,000, or 12% of those lashes, being commuted. It is noticeable that, far from reducing, lash averages were broadly consistent with those discovered by Arthur Gilbert's analysis of General courts Martial in the 18th century. The Napoleonic Wars appears to have witnessed a slightly lower lash average than the American Revolution. Gilbert found a lash average of around 800 lashes per punishment, And by comparison, GCMs during the Napoleonic Wars averaged around 750 lashes and GRCMs around 650. During the Napoleonic Wars, however, the number of trials using the lash exploded, helped in part by the introduction of the GRCM tier of military court in 1812. At this point, I want to run through some numbers. In 1808, the army issued 51,000 lashes. 1809 36,000 1810 40,000 and all of those figures are are rounded up to the nearest thousand which gives you a rough sense of the average that the army was issuing at, at GCM level. There isn't enough data to make an accurate assessment of what was happening at RCM level because records just don't survive in enough numbers for the period before 1811. It's worth noting then what happens in 1812 when the GRCMs were created and the data for the GRCM and GCM trials is taken together. 1812, 137,000 lashes. 1813, 230,000 lashes. And it remains at those extremely high levels even after the war was over. 1818 still saw 154,000 thousand lashes being issued by those two tiers of court alone quite clearly then the British military courts used flogging as a punishment more than ever before at a time when the king and the commander-in-chief were trying to limit the size of lash punishments which could be issued and to create options for alternative methods of punishment such as transportation far from being used as a means of punishing better the creation of the general regimental court-martial was seen simply as a tool by which to punish more. In light of this, what should we make of Charles Manners Sutton's claim that only eight men were flogged in 1811? A sympathetic observer would suggest that he was being selective with the truth. The registers for the general court-martial confirmed at home nine, not eight, individuals who were flogged in that year, but two of them were flogged before March 1811 and the alterations of the Mutiny Act that occurred uh, following the debate of that month, and seven of those floggings took place after. I, however, am not a sympathetic observer. I have a huge amount of time and respect for Charles Manners Sutton. He was a consummate professional involved in a significant amount of hugely beneficial and sweeping reform. Following his appointment as Judge Advocate General in 1809, and his reforming stance followed some lacklustre leadership from the two previous Judge Advocate Generals. Manor Sutton knew the nature of military justice and crucially knew how it was administered, meaning that he was perfectly aware that the returns of the General Courts Martial during this period were split into two volumes those confirmed at home by the King or Prince Regent during this period and those confirmed abroad by the regional commanders of the forces. Vitally, the General Corps Marshal confirmed abroad tell a very different story from the stats that were revealed from the register for those confirmed at home. Of the 169 individuals listed in the GCM's confirmed abroad register as having been tried in 1811, 55 were flogged, 34 of which were tried after the changes in March Why then was there a disconnect between those at the top of the army's command structure and what they were ordering and what those lower down were putting into practice? The answer lies in the conflicting pressures of command and control. Taken as a whole, GCMs and GRCM data provide interesting indications about conflicting priorities. All death sentences and a third of flogging punishments which were sent to the king or prince regent confirmation during this period were commuted, clearly reflecting a reluctance to confirm such punishments. By contrast, GCMs confirmed abroad show just 17% of death penalties and 8% of floggings were commuted. It is also noticeable that from 1813, commanders stopped sending flogging punishments home for confirmation This either indicates that a professionalisation of the military justice system, or more properly actually a militarisation because the officers, it was officers that were being employed rather than civilians to administrate, that process was imbuing regional commanders with a greater confidence to confirm the flogging punishments themselves, or alternatively, they increasingly appreciated that sending a flogging punishment home would likely result in a royal pardon or a commutation of that punishment for service abroad. In 1812, 22 of the 35 floggings placed before the Prince Regent resulted in commutations. Nine of those were in fact pardons, representing easily the highest commutation rates for GCMs and GRCMs during the period. It is here then that we come to the way in which Brougham was arguably being disingenuous during the Mutiny Bill debate in March 1812. Whilst those at the head of the army may well have been supportive of efforts to reduce flogging, there was by no means a unanimous call for its removal from an army which was implementing it on a vast scale. But crucially, nor was there public agitation. Newspaper reports on military trials almost never covered the rank and file, who were the ones who were ultimately being flogged, and I've only found one article advocating abolition of the lash. Furthermore, there were plenty of commanders who were unequivocal in their belief that flogging was essential. In 1816, the Duke of Wellington wrote to one of his divisional commanders, remarking, I don't know why you disapproved of the sentence of 800 lashes, as it is strictly legal, and in my opinion, a punishment much more likely to operate as an example than that of transportation. I dislike the punishment of flogging as much as the others, but I dislike crimes still more. And I must say that our squeamishness about corporal punishment of late years and our substitutes for it, such as transportation, general service, marking, branding, with the letter D, etc., are an encouragement rather than an example to prevent crime with the majority of our drunken soldiers. Ultimately, a benevolent humanitarian desire to reduce corporal punishment in the army was being eclipsed by the pragmatic decision of those on the ground, who were more concerned with maintaining tight control over their men. There is, though, another tier of court, which so far has been excluded from this discussion, the Regimental Courts Martial, or RCMs. The data available here is more fragmentary, as registers of court-martials within the regiment have not always survived, and where they exist, they are often incomplete, with very little data being available prior to army reforms in 1811. Nonetheless, using a sample of 27 regiments, I have been able to compile a database of 3,480 RCMs. Floggings were issued in 2,683 cases, that's 77%, and amounted to nearly 650,000 lashes. Yet there are some important nuances in that data. Floggings at RCM were much more likely to be reduced, 72% of those sentenced to floggings by RCMs saw their punishment reduced, with, on average, half of the punishment being remitted.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
1: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right?
2: at RCM. Following an almost total absence until 1812, it was issued just once between 1808 and 1811, the usage plateaued at well under 20 a year until 1817 when it rocketed. 81 instances in 1817, 129 the following year. By comparison for 1818, 184 RCM trials resulted in floggings to the 129 that resulted in solitary confinement. Here then, we have another very different picture to that of the GCMs and GRCMs. Although lagging well behind developments in wider European society, we can at least see the development of that shift which Foucault identified in the civilian courts. The reasons for that greater acceptance of solitary confinement are complex. It is tempting to conclude that the post-war rise was the result of the greater ease of facilitating solitary confinement. The army was no longer on campaign and could therefore commit men to guarding prisoners. However, if this was the key motivating factor, then the rise should have manifested itself as early as 1814, following Napoleon's abdication, or in 1815, following his exile to St Helena. The conclusion of the war undoubtedly made facilitating solitary confinement easier but it does not account for the timing of its adoption or the high rates of commutations of floggings which RCMs witnessed across this period. The key lies in the fact the RCM trials were judged and punishments issued by officers from the offenders units, unlike GCMs and GRCMs. These men had a vested interest in both maintaining morale and shielding the regiment from potential sources of shame. Being unduly harsh with the use of the lash could destroy a regiment's morale. Equally, leniency could have the advantage of making an example of the guilty man, showing that their behaviour was not to be tolerated, whilst also providing an opportunity to show humanity, which the officer's men would appreciate. Lieutenant George Simmons of the 95th Rifles recalled that when he was asked to oversee a flogging when the unit's surgeon was indisposed, he decided that he would intervene after 100 lashes, regardless of the soldier's health, and say that the man should not, in his medical opinion, be flogged further. Simmons remarked, I gave pleasure to every man present, for they knew well that if the surgeon had been there, he would not have dared to do so. Some short time after, the colonel said, George Simmons, you are a good fellow. You did did exactly what I wished you to do. I was very sorry to be compelled to punish that man, but for the force of example and landing in a foreign country." I had no other alternative. During the six-monthly inspections of regiments, assessors would remark on the extent of flogging in each unit and frowned upon excessive punishment, pointing to a tacit, widespread recognition that a degree of pragmatism was necessary when it came to punishing soldiers. One report on the 54th Regiment in June 1812, for example, found that court-martials were much too frequent under Captain Kirby's command, and considerable irregularity took place in the proceedings and over-severity in the execution of the sentences, which were not proportionate to the crimes. Frequent desertions have been the consequence of such irregularities and punishments. Yet this undercurrent of avoiding excessive punishment ran deeper than simply reducing the scale of punishments inflicted on convicted men. The standing orders of the 85th Light Infantry brazenly advocated the use of a tier of court which was not legally sanctioned, called Company Courts Martial, in order to reduce the number of RCM trials. As no records were kept for this court, there could be no record of the number of trials which were actually taking place. This therefore reduced the regiment's shame of holding a large number of RCMs, whilst also improving its reputation, as the number of trials that it seemingly needed to hold to maintain good order dropped. The two founders combined obviously bolstered the regiment's honourable reputation. Some officers deliberately manipulated the military justice system by trying their men for lesser crimes in more junior courts, reducing the scale of their punishment in a bid to preserve the unit's honour. Edward Costello recalled how one deserter benefited from this practice. After the proceedings of the court's martial were read, Major Cameron addressed the prisoner as follows. Stratton, I ought to have had you tried at a general court-martial. In that case, you would have been shot, but the high character that the regiment bears in the army prevents me from having it mentioned in general orders that a man of the rifles could be guilty of the heinous crime of desertion to the army. Cameron had to punish the deserter, but could not bear to have his regiment's honour besmirched by association with a deserter. Military law therefore took a back seat, and that pragmatism came back to the fore, with Stratton being spared what was going to be a far more severe punishment in the process. In conclusion, the reality of implementing punishments issued by the military courts during the Napoleonic Wars was far more complex and nuanced than the horrible history of lethal floggings initially suggests. Three factions within the army, each with diverging priorities, pulled in opposing directions in an effort to assert their own agendas on the operation of military justice. Whilst humanitarian concerns preoccupied the king and parliament, their voice was lost amongst the need of commanders on the ground to achieve swift exemplary justice to maintain order. In turn, regimental commanders on the front line subverted that agenda with their own efforts to maintain morale and protect the regiment's honour, implementing a pragmatic system of discretionary justice. Far from being the capricious and arbitrary system characterised by Buckley, the story of crime and punishment in Britain's Napoleonic-era army is one of neither humanity, nor honour, nor horrible history. It is one of all three operating and competing simultaneously. A common reaction when hearing about the scale of flogging punishments is to be appalled by the number of lashes, that's completely understandable. 1,500 lashes would literally have stripped the skin, and a lot more besides, from a man's back. Anyone receiving it would certainly have been hospitalised. But it's worth remembering two things. Firstly, surgeons were expected to intervene when the man could endure no more. Whether they did so was down to them as individuals, but it meant that men weren't supposed to be flogged to death on the tripod. Also, it's worth remembering the point of these punishments the army had the power to execute men for certain crimes, including the most commonly tried offences of theft and desertion. As a result, if the idea was to kill these men, there were more effective ways of doing so. Flogged convicts were meant to survive. The army couldn't afford to kill off large numbers of its troops, and actually it couldn't afford for large numbers of them to be hospitalised. Flogging cases were therefore examples of the army taking the worst breaches of military law and making examples of them. That process of making an example may have undoubtedly been brutal, but logic dictates that if you are making an example, you are also letting plenty of others slip through the net by receiving far less strenuous punishments. Folks often ask about the situation in the Navy and make comparisons with it by arguing that the Navy was actually less harsh. I have mixed responses to that. To the best of my knowledge, and I have seen contradictory information on this, the maximum flogging that could be issued by the Navy was 500 lashes. Some have suggested 1,000, but the most credible source I can find says 500. If anyone has better data, I'd be very keen to know more. In one sense, then, the punishments were less severe, but it's worth bearing in mind that the floggings were meant to be inflicted by the bosun, who would have been a particularly sturdily built and muscular individual. That therefore should have meant that there was more force behind the lash, though that's not to fall into the trap of arguing that because the floggings in the army were fl- inflicted by drummers, the army's convicts were being flogged, the army's convicts were being flogged by children. You of work has highlighted that actually drummers were far older than we popularly imagine them to be, except, you know, maintaining their position as drummers well into their teens or twenties. Even then, though, the two don't quite equate that notwithstanding though the the idea of a bo'sun flogging and a drummer flogging still doesn't quite equate folks often tend to ask me what the international comparison is like i have to be frank we just don't know my work is the first to ever try and put a definitive number on crime and punishment, and the broader situation in any army certainly of this period In many cases, we simply don't have definitive data for this. Michael Hughes tried to unpick the issue in his very interesting book, Forging Napoleon's Grand Armée, and concluded that there just isn't enough data to be comprehensive. There may be ways of unpicking the situation, in the Portuguese army in particular, considering that you could use the orders of the day, the equivalent of the British General Orders, to tabulate what is recorded within them. I haven't had the opportunity to do so yet, so can't comment further. But between the turmoil that engulfed many European nations during this period and the passage of the last 200 years, many records, if they ever existed, seem to have sadly either not survived or are buried very deeply in an archive somewhere. And finally, importantly, what about women? Where do they fit into this story? Well, camp followers were subject to the same laws as the rank and file and could, in theory, be tried by them. In reality, they very rarely were. Across the more than 9,000 cases in my database, there are just three women listed as having been tried, all of them at general court-martial. On the 6th of March, 1813, Elizabeth Fay, her rank is recorded simply as being wife of Private J. Fay of the 87th Regiment, was tried at Combra for absence from quarters and theft, but was acquitted. Earlier the same month, also at Combra, Bridget Dugan, listed as follower of the army was accused of firing into and breaking open a house. I haven't been able to find the transcript for that trial so cannot explain how she came by a weapon to fire into a house. I would love to know how that happened but she was in any case acquitted. Finally at Combray in February 1816 Jane Richards, wife of Jonathan Richards of the Grenadier Guards was tried for sacrilege but was also acquitted. As a result none of these women were actually punished as they were all deemed to be not guilty. But that is not to necessarily say that women in general were not punished. Nonetheless, there is anecdotal evidence to suggest that women could be quite roughly treated by those seeking to uphold military justice. William Wheeler wrote that when the eccentric Colonel Mainwaring ordered the drumhead court martial of a sentinel who allowed a deserter to escape, the man's wife came over to the parade square in tears. May Waring allegedly shouted, bring her in and tie her up. I will breach her while her husband is being tried. Now, it's worth saying here that the term breach at this time seems to have referred to the practice of flogging on the buttocks rather than the threat of sexual assault. The woman ran up, escaping an undoubtedly unjust flogging, though the fact that she fled meant that she must have taken the threat itself seriously enough. Similarly, the provost were prepared to use drastic methods to ensure that women followed orders. George Bell relates how, during the retreat from Salamanca in late 1812, some battalion wives acquired the habit of marching one in advance of the army in order to find provisions to add to their cooking pots. Their actions contravened the orders which Wellington had given prohibiting this, on the grounds that the women were so successful in this task that there was little food left for the commissariat to obtain. When they continued to disobey Wellington, the Provost was permitted to lie in wait for these women during one march and opened fire on their donkeys, killing and wounding a couple. According to Bell, despite furious curses from the women, who now had to carry the articles that they had burdened their donkeys with, the next day, however, they could be found doing exactly the same thing. Even the risk of death did not seem to deter these hardy women. I've therefore not been able to find any conclusive proof that women were flogged using a cat-of-nine-tails whip, though serious threats were certainly made against them. The impact that flogging battalion wives in this way would have had on morale, given that the wives were integral to supplementing soldiers' rations, and often performed other services including cleaning and mending uniforms, to say nothing of the moral support they offered, remains open to question. That's it for this episode. If you've got any questions, head to Twitter where you can find me at ZWhiteHistory History or the forum at thenapoleonicwars.net. Please remember to like, share, and leave a review. And if you'd like to support this content, you can find out more about the exclusive perks in each tier at patreon.com forward slash the Or if you don't be fancy being out of pocket, which I completely understand, and are looking to fill that last shelf on your bookcase with some military history titles, then take a look at the link in the description which will take you to the Wholesaler Naval and Military Press. There, if you use that link and purchase something, fairly obviously, the podcast will get 10% of your spend without any additional cost to you. A particularly big thank you to my mentioned in dispatches tier of patrons, Alex Churchill, Anna Vakulenko, Beatrice DeGraff, Brendan Teeling, an anonymous Canadian, James Bevan, Jamie Kingston, Jim Deary, John Haynes, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Rob Griffith, and Rory Muir, and my Commander Patron, Ger Brown. Join me in a fortnight for what will be a very busy June, as you are due three episodes in June on a wide variety of topics, including a couple of publications that I know are going to be of interest to you. Until then, I'm Zach White, this has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always... Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?